Addiction really is the anecdote to despair. And it's also key to feeling more connected to people, feeling, finding others who know and understand and feel the same things that you're feeling. And that's also what's going to help people rebuild and regenerate if we miss our CO2 reduction targets. Okay, so I recorded this episode a little while ago, and since then, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released another call to dramatically reduce carbon emissions. The scope of the issue here is massive. The effects of climate change will soon touch all of our lives, and most of us won't even be around for the worst of it. But our kids will be, and a lot of them know it. While there are some reasons to be optimistic, many kids feel hopeless, tired, and frustrated. So then how do we teach them about the future? when it feels like the world is doing nothing or, or very little about it. That's what Heather Short has been working on. She's a doctor in earth sciences and has been teaching climate to youth in CGEP for years. Now, for those of you who don't know, CGEP is a school that bridges secondary and higher education for youth in Quebec. And in this episode, she and I explore how we could reshape education to accommodate the new climate reality. My name is Eric DeCare, and this is No Simple Answers. So Heather, um, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eric. Um, I start off with this question with all of my guests. I'm just wondering, uh, how are you doing? Um, actually, I can't complain, really. Um, it's I love winter, and I don't mind lockdown at all. So, uh, so it's all good. Uh, okay, well, that's good to hear. Uh, I'm glad, yeah, I've been feeling a bit cooked up. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the summertime, but uh, th th that's good to hear. Um, so, okay. I mean, we have a lot to get into. Like, uh, like I wanted to talk to you about, um, climate education and, and how we can teach it in a way that, um, is ethical and that we can try to protect kids' mental health. And like, I don't know, you made some waves recently when you left your job, um, at John Ebbett College. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your time there and why you left. So I've been teaching since graduate school, really. So I've been teaching for nearly 25 years. And a lot of that was just teaching introductory geology courses, which I think still have a lot to contribute to our present situation because they, you know, the deep time aspect provides us with a really good perspective on human existence on the planet. So that's fun. But since I started working at John Abbott um, about 15 years ago, after I finished my PhD, I um, really started concentrating on climate, the climate crisis. And at that point, it wasn't being called an emergency yet because it still seemed like we had plenty of time to deal with it. Um, so the science of the climate crisis is actually really interesting. And I enjoyed it for the same reason that I enjoyed geology and, and why I bothered to get a PhD in earth sciences is because you, you use different things that you learn in the allied sciences and then put them all together in the context of an earth system that is continuously evolving uh, over hundreds of millions of years. And it's just, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to, to learn and to teach. And, uh, I really enjoyed it for many, many years. However, as time went on, those those deadlines for doing something about it 
about the climate crisis that I kept teaching my students about got closer and closer and closer. And I didn't really see the concomitant uh, societal political response that was necessary to avert these uh, these huge changes in our climate system that, that my students were learning about. So for me, the way I remedied that was I added more and more what to do about it to my climate science courses. So the students were getting climate education on the science and the really interesting fun stuff. And then also I was adding in every year a little bit more, a little bit more to, all right, so what do we do about it? And uh, eventually I looked up climate psychology because I was, I was really interested in why people didn't react to the information that I was giving them the way that I thought that they should react, which is, you know, jump up out of your chair and say, oh my God, I got to change everything. So I added into my courses a whole unit on climate psychology and how do humans react to really upsetting news, to really disturbing truths. And that explained a lot and it really informed my approach to how, how to teach these students about these really scary scientific truths. And that worked for a few years. But then the last couple of years before I, I finally resigned, I noticed that even that wasn't working anymore. Even going through why humans are reacting this way, why are we not rising to the challenge of all of humanity, basically, and, and then offering real concrete sort of actions to, to do that. I, I noticed my students just either were fatigued, just totally tired of hearing about this, really worried. Uh, they felt hopeless. They felt helpless, really, because when you're 20, 21 years old, you're just starting your life. You're like, you, you don't, you know, you're looking to other people around you to sort of guide you into, okay, how are you going to be an adult? How are you going to live the rest of your life? And I think what happened was that the students really understood, I would say, in the last two or three years that what they were being prepared for in their education as it stands right now was not preparing them for what they thought it was going to prepare them for, what they've been told reality is and what the future is going to be like. So that's hard to reconcile, especially if you're a, a young person. Yeah. It's the, the class that you were uh, the, the class that you were teaching, it wasn't meant to be focused on climate change in particular. It was a science course. Is that right? Um, so I actually developed this course myself. And, and fortunately, I had the, the latitude to do that. And ironically, the reason that was, was because there are no climate change courses required within the SAGEP system. Zero. Not even for, for science majors. So, uh, as a, I was in the, the department of, of um, geoscience and I was, a, I was a, allowed to because this course was not required. It was just a course that people could elect to take and, and people did it. It filled up every semester. So 
there was a clear demand. Um, but yeah, ironically, I was able to develop this course because I had absolutely no restrictions on um, trying to meet certain competencies dictated by the Ministry of Education. Right. And was it a required course? Is this something that kids could just choose to join if they were interested? No, it was a science. Uh, I did a science option course for many, many years called Earth System Science. And it didn't, I mean, it doesn't even sound like it's a climate course, but but that's what it was about. And that was only available to science um, stream SAGEP students. And uh, then a few years after that, I would say maybe about six or seven years ago, I started team teaching a course called From Science to Action with a colleague of mine in geography. And that was available to everybody, but only as a complimentary course. So again, in no way, shape or form required. Right. So, okay. So kids, you like to take your class. Um, and you, you mentioned those feelings of hopelessness and like, what happens when they leave the classroom? Like, what's like, how do they like act once they leave the room and uh, go out into the world? That's, um, you can imagine, really. It's, um, I was experiencing the same thing to a certain degree of teaching about all of this, the, what the science says. And what the science says is that we have between five and 10 years to radically change everything that Western wealthy countries are, are used to and all of our systems in order to avoid uh, passing uh, a tipping point in Earth's climate system after which a cascading warming, positive warming um, effect would uh, would start and, and be really, really, really difficult to stop. So um, it's like living in two different worlds. It's like in my classroom living in climate reality and then you go out the door and it's business as usual. It's you have to study, you have to work hard, you have to get a certain R score in SEGEP in order to get into a certain program and then get into um, a you know, good university and then and then get a job, make lots of money and buy a big house and a car and all that stuff. So it's really two, two different worlds. And I mean, not to say that all other courses at SEGEP were, um, were, not, were not teaching kids something. I mean, of course, it's really important to learn about the arts and about language and about how to get along with people. But, but overall, our educational system as it stands and as it's really been since World War II, more or less, is geared towards producing people to participate in a growth capitalist economy so like unending growth and you will continue to to make money and make money for other people and and everything's going to be great <laughs> and i think the students kind of like felt really unsupported they yeah, i did my best to support them in my classroom um I had many times before students say, well, you know, it's hopeless. We're not going to, we're not going to do this, are we? And I would always counter that with like, well, you know, humans are really amazing. And yes, we've done all of these awful things, but then yes, we also have this amazing capacity to pull together and to come up with, with, um, 
with remedies and 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 it, it is possible and i would use things like um slavery used to thought be thought of as normal in north america or um it used to be considered normal for women not to vote because their brains were smaller or something like that so and that would help a little bit but like i said in the last couple of years they, something had changed and the students just didn't buy it. They didn't buy it that the adults in their lives, the ones who had agency to actually try to change this system in their future, um, would would do so in time. Um, yeah, so I think they left my classroom feeling really kind of like, okay well why am i in school then yeah and it's interesting right like because i go back and forth on this because i think the way like structuring climate education in that way like making it an optional course is indicative i think of you know how we think about climate in general we almost treat it as a hobby right like oh he's an environmentalist or she's an environmentalist and uh that's just their thing um but like i don't know like can afford can kids afford not to be environmentalists like uh, i like because i because those other interests matter like there's other jobs that kids can do there's other things that people can do to be helpful and to to contribute um so i'm just curious what your take is on that um well it's it's unfortunately the students who are going through our school system now and and everyone who's younger than them now are are being forced to think about the climate and the destruction of ecosystems as the most important thing in their lives because it is and they didn't choose that right they didn't it's not it's not their fault being born into the system and that said it's it's not most of our faults because we just live in this system and we didn't think about it much and while we were growing up and this is what you know our parents told us was how things were going to work and etc um and i think it's really important to have a fair amount of what i like to call practical compassion for for people who think well i don't want to make this the center of my life i don't want to have to you know go to demonstrations and be politically active and all that because it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair to them. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I resigned ultimately was because I felt like teaching young people about the climate emergency and then teaching them that really the most effective way to do something about this is to, is to make this your life goal, which is to pressure governments to do something about the climate crisis, which is reduce CO2 as quickly as possible. But um, yeah, I felt it wasn't fair for me to to place that burden in their laps at the beginning of their adult lives. So I thought that my efforts would be better directed at trying to educate the adults in their lives so that they could perhaps do something about it. And then also be supports for their kids because that's what they need. I mean, they need all of us older folks to, at the bare minimum, learn as much 
about the climate emergency as they learn in my classroom so that when they leave it, they can say, wow, um, this sucks. I'm really worried. I'm scared. And any adult can say to them, I understand. And we'll try to get through this together. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, building a, a healthier context for them to live in and a more supportive environment to live in. I I completely agree with that. And I do like that approach. And, and, and you did kind of make a pitch to your school to to try to implement a system that would do that. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you can walk us through what that might have looked like um, had it been adopted. So I was really not working from any models really in terms of uh, of a job restructuring which is what i proposed ultimately i just thought about what is it that needs to be done to make this a better learning experience for these young people because we are not serving them and we are not actually preparing them for their actual future reality so I proposed to become a climate literacy specialist for lack of a better phrase. But essentially what I, what I planned to do was to teach all of the adults that worked at that institution what I had been teaching for the previous 15 years to, to young people. And just so we're on the same page, just so when students learn about the climate emergency, they leave my classroom to be in a supportive environment where they can talk to any adult about their fears and their um, plans for the future. And because that's really what they want to know. That's the biggest anxiety for SEJEP students is, what am I going to do with my life? And if you have that juxtaposed with, okay, but the world is ending, <laughs> then there's a huge, huge need there for not just intellectual support, but but literate emotional support for them. And um, so that's what I proposed to do. And I was I was going to educate all my peers and then also contact folks who are trained um, ecotherapists, again, for lack of a better phrase, but but folks who know how to talk to people who are worried about the climate uh, crisis and have them train the counselors there. Because it's really difficult for somebody, especially a young person, to go ask for help from a professional and then be told by the professional, well, this is outside of your circle of concern. <laughs> you know, don't worry, because I know one student at least who was told that. It's like, okay. Um, so it's really about changing the whole culture of the institution and changing um, the fundamental literacy in terms of, of climate science and the climate crisis so that we're all better informed about what are the best steps to take to prepare students for their future. Right. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting idea. Um... Yeah, because like, like I'm trying to think about this too. Like, if we took that to the next step, and let's say we we took like a we tried to scale it up and apply it at multiple institutions, like I think where we might run into trouble there is just like that might be a tall ask for some schools, right? Like, you know, some schools are just trying to get through the day where they're working with kids who are at risk, um, like just 
trying to trying to prevent fistfights and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm just wondering if there's a way to implement this kind of thing in the way it's equitable that would be able to have that maximum amount of impact across the board. That's it's funny that you should say a tall ask because it's exactly what my administrator said to me <laughs> about my proposal. Um, and really, my response was, this is the biggest existential crisis facing all living things on the planet. Of course, it's a tall ask. And this is just minor. Um, so I think we have to keep that in perspective. But I agree. And I had that experience of being in a teaching institution. And yeah, you barely have the time to get everything done that you need to get done. So I totally understand that. And so it's it's really the, the institutions themselves need to change fundamentally, but perhaps that's a topic for another day because that's really starting to dream. Uh, let's dream. I, 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 I'm, I'm good at dreaming. <laughs> no. Okay. So the way that I had, had envisioned doing this just at, at John Abbott was um, to use ped days. All schools have ped days and um, not all teachers find them useful. So I, uh, like, for example, we would have ped days about... Sorry, uh, just, what's a ped day? What is that for people that don't know? A ped day. It's a, it's a pedagogical day. Yeah, so it's a day where you're required to be at the school, but there's no classes. And um, I know that those exist all the way down through um, high school and elementary. So these are... Um, are, are opportunities, and we have at least one every semester, sometimes more, where everyone's supposed to be there at their jobs, and most people just, you know, work, prepare for classes, or do marking, or whatever. Um, but there is a precedent for uh, using those days as, like, training days. I just thought, like, why aren't we having a half-day training on the climate emergency? So I um, it, there so there's a precedent there and there's room there in the schedule to do this and um, in my proposal I'd actually created a whole schedule about um, okay you know which department would I teach when and blah 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 and the the desire for that was there I actually before I resigned I had given gosh like fifteen or sixteen talks to department meetings to other people's classes to student groups in in just that one semester before so so people want to know this stuff um, and it's important so the way that it could be uh, done at other institutions is again at ped days or pedagogical days for uh, for teachers so that they're paid for their time to be there but you could also do it with um, like asynchronous training over the internet, right? So I'm actually right now developing a, a course on climate literacy with Sterling College in Vermont um, aimed to do just that. So it's going to be asynchronous 14-ish modules about climate basics, how does this make you feel, and then here's what we got to do. So those would be an easy way to get this information out to more people. Although, of course, teaching in person is more effective and more fun. So it can be done. But I also think that we need to have a 
public information campaign. We need to have a general education of the general public because there's way too much misinformation out there. And um, and students are influenced by it as well. But I'd even run into colleagues in other departments who were climate delayers or um, not full-on deniers, but de- delayers and students would listen to them. So it's it's we really need to have sort of a countrywide competencies for understanding climate basics and where we are and and. We're not even close to that. What what would be included in that? Like, what would you include in that kind of program? Or that, like, what are the key things that you would want people to know? Um, so I think there's a couple key points that people really need to understand and take home and, um, and think about carefully. One is that the climate's changing very rapidly right now, faster than it has in geologic history, as far as we can tell, and that it is absolutely due to human activity. So human burning of fossil fuels, but also the removal of what we call carbon sinks. So natural areas like forests and wetlands and even the oceans that absorb CO2 from the atmosphere, or take it in from the atmosphere and keep it there. So, um, so we're sort of hitting it at at both ends. And the other thing that's important to know about that is that it is not really the fault of a collective we. It's not all humans on the planet who are responsible for this. It's actually really a very few um, wealthy countries that are responsible for the majority of this uh, CO2 emissions. And the other thing is that we didn't really know about this until about... hmm, 30 years ago, really in the in the political mind, so that I think it's really important to, yeah, be it's okay to be angry about it, but it's also important to look at this through a practical lens. What do we need to do to, to treat this, to address this? And one of the fundamental things that we need to do is to acknowledge that it is the blind accumulation of wealth <laughs> through... Uh, extraction of fossil fuels and burning them to produce goods that people don't need um, for decades. And this this is the fundamental problem. So in order to, to fundamentally fix, or not, I hate the word solve, but to address the, the climate issue, to the climate emergency, we've waited far too long to do anything incremental about it. We should have started that 30 years ago, minimum. We must now go into emergency mode and get off of fossil fuels as soon as possible because we have no time to waste. And this is this is literally, we are literally talking about giving up luxuries and conveniences that we're used to in wealthy nations so that our children and grandchildren can actually have a place to live. It's, it's, I know that sounds melodramatic. That is literally what we're talking about. So, um, and I think part of the problem with communicating this is, is that it is so dire (laughs) that the, the easiest thing and the, everyone's first reaction is that can't be right. Of course not. That can't be right because it is so out there 
from our everyday experiences that the of course the first reaction is disbelief but we need to get that message out there and we need to not only get that message out but also explain to people how we've arrived at these conclusions and explain to people how science works because there's this huge amount of misinformation out there there's a huge amount of um of well i mean sort of wishful thinking people not wanting to believe what the science says because it's too scary so we need to with climate literacy also promote science literacy which is not like being able to do weird equations and stuff like that it's just about okay how does science work and it works through a consensus building of folks who spend their whole lives studying this stuff so there's no corporations involved there's no conspiracy theories the climate science is is done by thousands of people from different cultures all over the world who reach a consensus through doing studies and publishing papers through this rigorous peer-reviewed process so of course there's there's going to be some difficulties in that because it's all run by humans and humans make mistakes but there is absolutely no reason to not trust what the scientific consensus says on um the climate emergency so what do we do once once that gets out there is we really need to support people so just like with my students they need this sort of emotional and practical support once they learn the scientific truth, everyone else will need that as well. So we need to create a, a culture in which it's okay to talk about it and that it's okay to, to, for everybody to say, I'm really scared about this. I really want to do something. I really wish our politicians would do something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways we are there. Like, I think people are talking about it more. But like, yeah, I think there's room for for more um, discussion on that. And like, man, I, like, I would love to get in the weeds on like potential climate solutions. Like, I think, yeah, like the workings of capitalism can be questioned, and there's a lot to criticize there. Uh, I'm just, I'm not entirely convinced that we can abandon an entire way of organizing a society to, you know, to to meet these needs. So, and. But I mean, that's a topic for another episode. I would love. It's a big ask. I mean, yeah, exactly. So just trying to keep things practical, it's a little bit, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to see the way forward. I agree with you there. Um, but coming back to that topic of mental health, like, there's a term for it, right? Eco anxiety is becoming a thing. Um, so, like, the American, the APA, the American Psychological Association, kind of acknowledged that it was an issue, an increasing issue. The Scientific American put out a piece, kind of saying that it's a big deal. Uh, in the UK, half of youth therapists said their clients were dealing with some kind of eco-anxiety. And in the US, I mean, this was in 2016, um, but more than half said that their clients, well, of therapists said their clients were experiencing some kind of eco-anxiety. How much of this is we need to rethink our programs to better support kids' mental health and reactions to the climate crisis? And how much of it is that we just need better mental health supports just like all the way through? And would that be like a sufficient way to to think about the problem? In terms of, of schooling, the 
the main problem that I see is, is that we're all, I mean, we're trying to, to do our best with what we've got, right? And I think what we've, we've got to realize is that we're, we're actually standing at this intersection between human existence and like geologic existence. It's really, this is a, a amazing moment to be alive really on this planet because the, 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 the climate emergency that we're facing is so much bigger than any of our human inventions like institutions and economies and and um and and our little ways of organizing ourselves on this planet so it's as a geologist i find it really easy to imagine different worlds right so i and most of the time i think in terms of hundreds of millions of years but um i realize that most people don't do that and it's it's difficult to impart how big this is this this sort of pivot in human history as well as geologic history so I think what we have to do is really <laughs> it's, it's hard it's like I don't have the answers Eric <laughs> I know. I mean, yeah. Part of this is acknowledging the fact that we're not going to come out of this with, you know, with hard and fast things that we can do. No, but I think we need to. We I think what we need to do is is honestly to restructure our entire educational system to be focused around the things that actually allow us to stay alive on this planet. So we need to have our, our sort of core curriculum focused on um, ecology and geology. So we know geologic time and we know our, our, our place in this world and the understanding that the, the really the greatest technological uh, sort of creation that humans have is this fully functioning earth system that we live in. It's amazing. It's the only one we know of in the universe. It's crazy that we're on here, you know? So I, I think people, I mean, and we've been accustomed to, to coming up with these really sort of smart ideas and, and ways of, of, of moving forward and, and inventing things and, and coming up with solutions and we have, you know, smart everything. <laughs> and really, I think we just need to sort of take a step back and look at, at, at what we actually have and, and appreciate that and think, wow, this is going to be really hard to replace. That didn't answer your question at all, did it? <laughs> No, but it's uh, I think a, a challenge with 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 thinking about this stuff is that yeah, in some cases it does require questioning some of the base assumptions of of how we do things, and like it, the education system is just at the core of of how we organize society. So it's like for a problem as big as this, it's I think it's it it deserves a bit of time 
you know, to think about Absolutely. Like, what that could look like if we wanted to create a system that supports the goals of, of survival. Like that's, that's what we're talking about here. It is. Um, so I hear you and like, I, I, I don't, uh, and I sympathize with the, like the, the difficulty of it because it's, I, I'll run myself in circles also just being like, what the, what the heck do we do? Like, I just, I don't see it. Um, but anyways, uh, so I, I, I'm trying to be conscious of time too. So I think of, uh, the last question that I want to leave you with is just for any parents who might be listening, like if they're, if they're, if they're wrestling with ways on how they can talk to their kids about climate and the climate crisis, um, what would be your advice to them? Um, well, little kids uh, would be hard. I wouldn't actually suggest talking to small children about it yet unless they ask. Um, but for for young adults, I think what's really most important is to listen to them, to listen to what they have to say about it and listen to their feelings about it because as as young people as teenagers and young adults they already feel like they have no agency they already feel like they that no one's listening to them and no one's thinking about them and their and their futures in this climate crisis so uh, i think really the most important thing to do is to just say hey how you feeling about this and acknowledge how they're feeling and it, and 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 share with them how you might be feeling you know it's it's totally okay to not have the answers here and it's also totally okay for you yourself as an adult to be scared and worried and flustered and not know what to do the key i think there is also to say we're going to try to figure this out together we're going to maybe you know go to a demonstration or join a local group or um start talking to other people about the climate crisis until we reach sort of a social tipping point where everybody's talking about it and then motivated to 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 be involved action really is the anecdote to despair and it's also key to feeling more connected to people feeling finding others who know and understand and feel the same things that you're feeling and that's also what's going to help people rebuild and regenerate if we miss our CO2 reduction targets. So really focusing on building community through understanding and mutual aid. Absolutely. I think we could all use a lot of more connection right now. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening, and thank you to Heather for coming on. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter at Eric underscore DeCare, or you can find me on email at eric at nsapod.show. And if you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and if you feel like it, leave a review and a rating. Thanks so much.